This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Recent volatility in markets has slowed deal-making, debt issuance, and other corporate activity. To discuss those developments in the market, I'm joined by Kathy Elsesser, the global co-head of the Consumer, Retail, and Healthcare Group in our investment bank here at Goldman Sachs. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. Kathy, last year was a record-breaking year for M&A, but the first quarter of this year, of 2016, we saw market slowdown in activity. What do you think about the state of the market really today, given the strength of last year? It does feel different, Jake, now than it did last year at this time. So 2015, we saw volumes at more than 40%. And so far this year, global retail M&A volumes are down more than 25%. There's still a number of strategic deals that we're seeing where one corporation is buying another. For example, Lowe's bought the Canadian home improvement company Rona, and Samsonite is buying Toomey. But like all sectors, the volatility of stock prices has made it challenging for buyers and sellers to agree on valuations. So as the markets have stabilized a little bit, are we starting to see a little bit more interest? We're definitely starting to see more discussions in the boardroom. You know, there's another dynamic at play. A large percentage of the historic retail M&A has been driven by private equity firms. So the Bain Capitals, KKRs, and Carlisles of the world and they were buying and selling a lot of assets between themselves or taking public companies private. In order to do that, those transactions rely on the non-investment grade market to fund a large portion of the purchase price. And that market had been pretty rocky in late 15, early 16, and that too has come back and been, you know, it's a much more improved dynamic. And therefore I think that too will see a resurgence as we see more price. financing available for non-investment grade, you'll see PE firms jump back in. Exactly right. So after a tough start for the year, the debt markets have stabilized a little bit, as you said. How would you characterize the state of the credit markets right now? And do you think it could show continued improvement over the course of the year? Yeah, the credit markets have improved dramatically in concert with the equity markets. To your point, you know, late 2015, early 16, there were significant outflows of capital from the debt markets. But since early February, that trend has reversed, and there's been roughly $13 billion of inflows into the non-investment-grade market and close to $7 billion into the investment-grade market. Why is that? In part, it's been an increasing oil price environment, more stability in the equity markets, and pretty positive consumer economic information. And so with those inflows, both markets are now positive. And so there's capital to put to work to support deals. And I suspect the markets will continue to see improvement as rates are expected to stay low longer and volatility has come down. And quite frankly, some of the transactions that have been executed this year have performed very well in the secondary markets. Let's talk a little bit about activists in the space. There have been some pretty high-profile instances in recent years where activists went after a challenge a consumer retail company. Why are these companies so appealing to activists, and do you expect that trend to continue? Yeah, it's interesting, Jake. About 25% of all activist campaigns last year were targeted at consumer retail companies. The attraction is in part due to the familiarity. Everyone knows the products and brands, for example, Kraft Foods, Clorox, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi. And for the most part, there's relatively low volatility with these businesses, so not a lot of quote-unquote fashion risk. You know, as a result, and not much downside risk, right, really. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So there's a good potential upside with relatively low downside. And then as far as the trend continuing, 
2015 was a rough year for the activists. You know, many saw their worst annual performance since their inceptions, and that triggered a net outflow of about $3 billion in the last quarter of 15. So it would seem that perhaps the bloom is off that rose, but I actually think the activists are here to stay, and there's a couple reasons for that. One, growth of activist capital has outpaced the market by about 2.5 times since 2013. You're not talking about performance, just about inflows. No, so the performance yeah. was pretty weak, and that resulted in outflows. Having said that- At the that, end of the year, yeah. At the end of the year. Having said that, you know, these funds have raised more than $150 billion, and that's money that could be put to work for new investments. So there's a large amount of capital that can be used for activist campaigns. You know, the second thing is the market volatility, while it created some poor performance last year, also provides opportunities potential for new investment theses. And third, there's a generational shift among mainstream, what we call long-only investors. Portfolio managers now view engaging with companies as part of their role, rather than simply selling when they're not happy. This provides a bedrock of support for the activist funds and means that activism is now really embedded within the mindset of those core investors. So activists basically working hand in hand with mainstream investors in a lot of cases. You know, the markets become very correlated. Things are tending to go up and down together. So in order for investors to really beat the market and find quote unquote alpha return, they need to do better than the market. And as a result, if you believe that an activist fund can create a near term event, either increase return of capital or drive consolidation that can create better returns than simply the market. Is that sometimes that call for the return of capital coming at the expense of the longer term vision of these companies? I'm sure that's what a lot of corporate CEOs would like to argue. What have you found in your experience? And Jake, I think that's a hot debate. Many board members and CEOs are looking out for the long term as they should. At the same time, there is near term pressure on performance when global growth is good but not great. And so it's a really tough judgment call as to how much capital should be putting back into the business for the long term versus supporting stock prices in the nearer term. So let's talk about the consumer for a second. Yep. The consumer has seen a bit of a windfall in terms of falling gas prices. And typically falling gas prices just mean more disposable income in people's at least savings account or checking account. In your conversations with clients, how do they see the impact or are they seeing the impact of lower gas prices? And have they been surprised that it's been relatively muted, that economic response so far? It has been muted, and I do think they are surprised. Someone would say that the consumers haven't necessarily believed that that's lower gas prices were sustainable. And so therefore, we're keeping those savings for themselves. I think a larger group believe that lower gas prices has resulted in increased discretionary cash flow but that cash flow is being used for different things today. The consumer is no longer necessarily looking for staples. They're looking to spend their money on experiences, be it travel, be it restaurants, or you know more minutes on your phone or other mobile device. So less actual goods and more experiential. Correct. Yeah. You talked a little bit about interest rates being low, and they've been low for a long time, and many expect them to stay low for a while. How are the multinational clients adapting to that environment, particularly as there's a bit of a divergence between U.S. interest rate policy and Europe and the rest of the world? Well, those divergence policies are also driving issues around FX. So interest rates, by and large, are low across the globe, some lower than others, obviously, which tends to make it slightly more advantageous for those in lower interest rate environments like Japan to potentially deploy capital. 
But foreign exchange is really not new news, but certainly on the minds of multinationals. And it's an important issue. You know, many companies were the beneficiary of a weaker dollar, or at least U.S.-based companies. Um, In terms of lowering their cost basis. And increasing their top line on overseas sales. Exactly. So uh, think about it this way. If you're a U.S.-based company, three years ago, the euro was at 130 and then went to 140. So every euro you earned was right. translated back to $1.40 in your home country. Now that's reversed as the dollar has continued to strengthen against the euro. And that would be similar across all different foreign currencies. You know, the flip side's also true. For multinationals that are based overseas, they're now seeing the benefit of a strengthening dollar. Net-net, from my perspective, most corporates, while they're focused on it, because it does affect cash flow and other things, investors tend to look through it, both to the upside and the downside. So most companies really focus on driving, planning, and budgeting based on constant dollars. But as the dollar is strong, you do see some foreign multinationals looking for more U.S. exposure, too. Exactly. One of the biggest trends, obviously, we could talk a whole podcast about this in retail has been the rise of e-commerce. And even though e-commerce has been around for a long time, we're really starting to see significant increases in usage. So U.S. e-commerce sales rose 14.5% in the fourth quarter of last year. And that's just been a really rapid trajectory. So what do you think? Are bricks and mortar on the way out? You know, it's so interesting. I get that question a lot, as you can imagine. And I recall about five or six years ago being at an internet conference where there was a lot of casually dressed entrepreneurs um, wondering why I possibly would run the global retail group at Goldman Sachs. They thought it was a little entertaining. And the increase has been rapid. But let's be clear, stepping way back, e-com sales only represent 8.5% of total retail sales in the United States. So while it's growing quickly, yeah. it's... And it's- and it's been around for 16, 17 years at a minimum. Yeah, so I don't think retail's on the way out. You know, having said that, the retail model needs to evolve in order to ensure that the consumer can buy what they want, when they want it, whenever they want it. And if there's one thing the internet has done, has created that level of engagement and convenience. Now. Now, I want exactly. It now, right. Or I wanted it yesterday. When buying decisions are based on a breath, of selection, price, and speed, take books, music, office supplies, e-com will tend to win more than they will lose. But retail has always been about more than selection, price, and speed. It's about the experience, the service, and quite frankly, the social dynamic. The result is that retail and e-com are converging to put the customer in the center. So it's no longer about where do I buy it, it's about I just want to buy it and I want to do it any way that I want it. So it's more about putting the customer in the center and not focusing on the channel. And retailers all now have highly integrated web and mobile offerings. And quite frankly, many pure play e-commerce players have open retail locations. Yeah, right. we've started to see that, yeah. Athleta, Bonobos, Warby Parker is a good example. And even Amazon, the leader in e-com, has a store in Seattle. So more of a convergence story than anything else. Yes. And really what's changing is that the customer is expecting a lot of what they like about e-commerce in their traditional retailers. And quite frankly, it benefits the, the retailer too, because when you go online, we know where Jake went, how long you spent on that site, what you were yeah, looking at. Yeah, then they at. follow me around for days <laughs> and days of... and days afterwards. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that phenomenon. 
So how much of this movement towards the changing mindset of the consumer is really a generational shift in the way younger consumers, millennials, think about buying things? You know, it's interesting. The majority of online shoppers tend to skew younger. Millennials make up more than half of those who buy online, even though they make up only 26% of the population. And they also spend more. Shoppers between the ages of 18 and 34 spend more money online in a given year than any other age group. On, a, on an absolute basis. On an absolute basis. On an absolute basis, okay. Now, having said that, we've all gotten accustomed at all age levels to the convenience of shopping online, and boomers, too, enjoy shopping online. The difference is in how they do it. The millennials, the majority of their time is spent on their phone and shopping mobily, whereas the majority of boomers, per se, shop from their desktop. Kathy, talk about the shift towards more focus of the consumer on health and wellness products. We see a lot of companies really marketing heavily in this space, and you've seen some companies that started off in this space being challenged by a lot of upstarts. What's going on in that market today? So this is a dynamic that's certainly being driven in part by the millennials, as we just talked about as it relates to e-com, but really cuts across all demographics and age groups. And part of that is there's been so much more education on the part of consumers as a result of the information that's now available to them through online and other sources. It used to be that it was really something that was a whole foods dream. Walter Robb, John Mackey thought that people should have the option to have fresh, organic food. And many people back when they were growing whole foods thought that was for a very select, small group of people. But as we sit here... They're moving into new neighborhoods, yeah. They are moving into new neighborhoods, and, you know, more organic offerings are now available. Back then, you wouldn't have believed that Walmart would be carrying a significant amount of organic food. But the consumer has become, as I said, more educated and more concerned about what they're putting into their body. And we're seeing that now move not just from the food and beverage sector, but into health and beauty. So people are looking for organic hair care, skin care, or if not truly organic, at least infused with coconut oil and coconut water. And it's a very different approach than we had seen historically. So to finish up, you've worked in this space in consumer retail since 2001. What struck you the most in terms of how consumer preferences have evolved over the years? Ecom has completely changed the way consumers interact with products and vice versa, and it's really turning the model upside down. And what I mean by that is a lot of manufacturers always thought about the product and having the best product, and you still need to have the best product, but now you also need to find the best way to engage with your end user. And for some companies, the end user was never a part of the formula, meaning they were thinking about their customer as the retailer. I'm manufacturing a product to sell to the retailer, and the retailer is going to edit it and select what they think is right for the customer. Now, the customer is really the center of all of those discussions, and what the consumers want is really paramount. So I think that's probably the most interesting shift that's taking place and will provide a lot of opportunity both on the retail side as well as on the consumer side. So it should be good news for consumers. They should get better experiences and presumably slightly better pricing over time. Price transparency has been the biggest issue for retailers, but also the biggest benefit for consumers as a result of the online distribution of information. On that note, I think we'll wrap this up. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening.
This podcast was recorded on April 12, 2016. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.